Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I want to read you something. These are song lyrics by Lucinda Williams, adapted from a poem by her father, Miller Williams. And I urge you to go listen to the tune sometime. Lucinda does it way more beautifully than I can. Have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems conceit is always a sign. For those you encounter, have compassion, even if they don't want it. What seems bad manners is always a sign. Of things no ears have heard, of things no eyes have seen, you do not know what wars are going on down there where the spirit meets the bone, down there where the spirit meets the bone. Empathy is the basic stuff of human connection. It's how we hear and are heard by one another. It's how we deal with one another as people rather than objects. But with massive, relentless trouble in the world, the 24-hour news cycle, the pressure to choose political and social sides, and the struggles of our everyday lives, empathy is sometimes in short supply. My guest today is the psychiatrist and research scientist Helen Reese. She's an associate clinical professor at Harvard and runs the Relational Science Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as the company Empathetics, Inc. Her work is all about empathy, where it comes from, what its effects are, and how we can develop more of it. And I'm so glad that she's able to be with me today. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. The reason that I invited you on the show, your book is wonderful, and also I care very much about empathy and about about whatever real possibilities may exist for helping people to connect in, in a world that seems like it's ever more fragmented. Your research has shown very promising effects here, some ways of actually teaching empathy and that it is teachable. So one of the reasons I became so riveted by this topic was that you know, as a healthcare provider and uh, in my unique position as a psychiatrist, I got to hear what patients really think about what's happening, you know, when they visit the doctor. Right. I noticed that many of my patients were spending way more time talking about how disappointed they were with their medical visits and less about talking about how angry they were at their mother or typical topics. And I was taking notice that doctors typically choose the profession because they want to help and they really care. And patients were reporting that they felt that no one had time for them, that they weren't being listened to, that even when they made progress, it really wasn't noted um, and right. then often got demotivated to continue making lifestyle changes that they really needed to. I, are we talking primarily about like general physicians as opposed to people in the in psychiatry and therapy? Yes, that's okay. a good clarification. We're talking about people who just came in and said, I, I want a new doctor. I mm. really didn't like what happened. You know, the last three times these things happened. So I realized that something was changing how doctors were relating to patients and as this trend continued and I started seeing headlines in the media, you know, the Times and Wall Street Journal about, like, how do we teach doctors to be nicer? And for some doctors, uh, empathy is in short supply. I realized right. that this was not just a unique thing happening in my practice. And I wanted to believe that no doctor wants to create any harm for patients. And empathy seemed to be getting drummed out of them. And so I was wondering, is empathy something that can only be lost or can it 
also be learned. Can we recover if we go into an empathy deficit? And so it led to a really kind of long journey into exploring the neuroscience of empathy, um, doing research, participating in research. And through that exploration, I really came to believe that if something that essential can be downregulated, that probably we could upregulate it if we found the right tools to do so. So this is something that's going to come back, I think, in this conversation. Because I feel like there's there's a tension here, and this came up in last week's show as well, uh, in which I talked with Ruth Whipman, who looks at kind of the happiness movement mm-hmm. and happiness industry in America, and some of the ways that that's filtered into corporations. And there are systemic problems that increase on the one hand, and then there's what the individual can do about them, right? So when you're talking about an empathy deficit in physicians, I'm thinking about, you know, the numbers of digital records they have to keep. I'm thinking about insurance companies and yeah, and just the fact that there are lots of like giant systemic forces that are standing between physicians and patients. Becoming more personally empathetic alone can't undo all of that. You're right. So, you know, in any situation where empathy might be declining, there are probably interpersonal factors between the the two people or the team involved, and then there are uh, systemic factors. You know, one of the really interesting things that I learned as I went around and did empathy training was the number of physicians who just feel so frustrated that they can't practice the way they really want to. Right. Because the throughput, you know, the number of patients they they're expected spend to see. they got to 10 minutes with a patient yeah, and then check them off. That's not how they want to practice. And then the documentation requirements have, have been really intense and it moves the face away from relating to the patient to having your face in a computer screen. And so the, you're right, there are many systemic challenges. What I was not willing to do was just to say, well, oh, well, I guess guess that's how it's going to be. And I also believed that with empathic communication, that it didn't necessarily have to take so long. And I have some scientific evidence to prove that. Mm. So we did a lot of videotaping and physiologic measurements of doctor-patient pairs in the research. And we filmed like really suboptimal interactions, you know, where gotcha. a patient's asking questions <laughs> and then the doctor's frustrated and say, we went over this last time and they end up just, you know, sort of arguing about the validity of the patient asking so many questions versus with empathy training, you can learn to say, what are your main concerns? So instead of like, you know, we went over this last time, you're wasting my time. Like, what is your main concern today? And if you connect on the main concern, it actually makes you much more efficient. There's a distinction that you make between the main subject. Chief chief chief, complaint and chief concern. Right. So that we tend to focus on the chief complaint, meaning we hear the surface of what the person is saying the issue is, but not necessarily what's underneath it. Exactly. So um, some easy examples are when you know, an older woman has just broken her her wrist. And the doctor will say, well, we have to put a cast on this. You know, it'll be on for X number of weeks. And she bursts out crying. And so I've observed these things because I've shadowed a bunch of doctors. And the doctor will look kind of like, this is not the end of the world. This is not a terrible diagnosis and kind of shrug it off. And then sometimes the doctor leaves while I'm shadowing. And I'll say to the person, you seem really upset. And she says, 
my daughter's in the hospital and I'm the one taking care of my granddaughter right now and I'm not going to be able to pick her up. And right. so you get to hear there's a backstory, whereas if you don't learn you know, what the chief concern is, you can just dismiss the whole thing and have the patient leave very upset. My parents are physicians and probably from the beginning of time, even in the absence of big systemic problems. There's a bias that can happen in physicians toward minimizing the severity of things because it's sort of like if you're not dead, if you're not lying in the ditch, like if if, if, if you don't you, have a terminal if you can, illness, if you can walk out of here, yeah. we're probably okay, basically okay. So I don't know what kind of utilitarian pragmatic bias. Well, I think what you're saying is that given the scope of what a physician sees all day, <laughs> right. unless they're walking in the shoes of the patient, they can say, well, that's not, you know, that's not the worst thing. It's certainly not the worst thing I've seen this week. But when they're the person with the broken <laughs> wrist or the one who just broke their foot and is hobbling around in a boot, all of a sudden that regard and empathy for the patient gets sky high because they realize all the inconvenience associated with the problem. The thing I keep thinking about is the importance of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So if we're trying to deal with, if we're trying to improve individuals' ability to be more empathetic, that we not then allow institutions to use that as an excuse for not reforming themselves. You know? Well, I think you're raising a really important point, Jason, and that is when enough physicians are frustrated oh, right. that they can't provide the care and, you know, empathic care and good relational skills are also highly related to medical outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so when we're not able to provide the care the way we want, and it also leads to people not making changes and not engaging and partnering in their health care, that feedback has to go back into the system. And I think that's actually happened through the phenomenon of physician burnout, Mm. So physicians are asked to do more and more and more in the same amount of time. Right. And there is a burnout epidemic now in medicine. If you go to any medical conference, one of the chief topics is physician burnout, but it's now been sort of reframed as um, what are we doing about physician wellness? Got you. And it's the first time in the history of medicine that this has become a top priority in medical schools, in uh, residency training programs, and in hospital systems. Because working with a burned out workforce, you know, the bottom line is going to suffer. Right, Your right, right, right. People there, are there's leaving. a very clear business case yes. for empathy. And, in that, and the in attrition that now is phenomenal. Many people are leaving the profession and everyone has taken note of that. So, so let's talk about this empathy. You have this sort of like empathy system that you've developed to train people to become more empathetic. It's about paying attention to various physical cues and yes. tone and mm -hmm. uh, so, affect. Exactly right. So <laughs> when I did this sort of neuroscience of empathy exploration in a fellowship I did at Harvard, I learned through many, many studies how it is that humans connect. And some of these things are incredibly obvious when you like think about them. Right. But many of them are practices that have gone by the wayside. There were seven keys to empathic communication. The first one was eye contact. And I thought it was really kind of neat that empathy starts with an E and eye contact is probably the most important way that we first engage That's with people. And so as I was going through my notes and 
trying to figure out like how can we make these things stick how can we make these things like really memorable um i started playing around with the word empathy and the seven keys actually started to fit into the word so it what can be easier to remember than the word that you're trying to like imbue in people sure no absolutely <laughs> and actually i i should re like reverse just a little bit Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by empathy and, mm -hmm. and then come back to like, How you know, we, what, it, what the approach is. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, my understanding of them and things can get very fussy when one starts trying to parse between empathy and compassion and so on. But I know that there are scientific, when you're doing a study, there are reasons to make those sorts of distinctions. Yeah. When you're talking about empathy, what- How what do I define it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. First of all, you're in good company if you think it's kind of a, a messy term because there are- at least 50 different definitions that are readily available. I go to neuroscience because it's hard to argue with what's happening in the brain when we're trying to identify a term or a definition. Sure. And so through neuroscience research, we know that when people in scanners are looking at other people's suffering, mm. that both their emotional centers and their cognitive centers become active. Mm. So people who say, oh, empathy is that soft, squishy, emotional quicksand that people get into and then they only care about one person and, you know, that's not such a great thing. I would say to that that the emotional component is only part of what gets activated in empathy, but also our cognitive reasoning centers because that gives us an ability to take other people's perspective. It uses our imagination to imagine what is it like for that grandmother to be at home now with a six-month-old baby and she can't hold it. By taking perspective, we come up with broader solutions than just putting a cast on a wrist. Right. Okay. And we don't also sink into the emotional quicksand of the other person so deeply that we can't get out and be and of any use. Exactly. Like, and, and in medicine, you don't want to sink so deeply that you lose your role. Right. Like your role is there to be the physician and the helper and not, you know, to be the commiserator. But that intersection where we actually feel other people's misery or pain or suffering, our brains are wired to experience that in an attenuated degree. We don't feel the whole pain of somebody else. Right, right. We, like if you think about... There's um, a, right, there, it, it's, it, we show it a diminished, a slightly diminished reflection, like neurologically yes. of the same pain. Yes, and there, there are really brilliant studies that show that, that when we receive self-pain, our entire pain matrix lights up. Right. But when we observe others in pain, only part of that pain matrix lights up. Mm. And the reason is that if our whole pain matrix lit up, like if you just, you know, got a big gash in your arm <laughs> and I felt it to the full degree, I would probably be thinking about my own pain. Yeah, you'd be immobilized on the Thinking owl. about my yeah. arm. But if I, if I flinch and I cringe because I'm seeing you in pain and I'm seeing, you know, blood coming out of your arm, I get it that you're in pain, but I want to help. For me, there's an essential moment in what I think of as empathy, which is even though you're not feeling the other person's pain to the complete extent, you are aware that that could be you. That is why empathy has been preserved through the millennia that humans have inhabited the planet, because it is actually very adaptive. First of all, we learn when we see other people in pain 
not to do whatever they did. So, right. you know, we learn don't slam your hand in a car door because it's <laughs> going to really hurt because you can see somebody in deep pain. Right. But it's not just to teach us what to avoid. It's what you're saying. It's also it's an overlap of, of mind. It's a shared mind experience, which exactly. I talk about in the empathy effect, that this shared information, shared mind intelligence, it motivates me to help you so that you survive. And it also teaches me how to avoid situations where I might be harmed. So it's a very important instruction. So empathy is feeling with and understanding with others. Mm -hmm. Sympathy is feeling bad for people. And there's more of a power difference, like, oh, I feel so bad for you. I'm doing fine, but poor you, Right, Right. right? Not that sympathy is bad, but it's not actually using our real ex- shared experience or being able to imagine the pain of others to get into the same space and the same place. Something you point out in the book, and, and that's really, really important, is that it's much easier for us to feel empathy for people who are in some way like us, whose experience we kind of recognize, right? And that can have very powerful effects within cohorts. But when you're trying to expand empathy toward more of a global focus or, you know, a doctor for their patients who may be very different from them in many respects, it's important to think about how to kind of leap over that. We have the most empathy for people who are like us, for people who have suffered in similar ways. So if you get people from diverse backgrounds who've all lost a child, right. you are going to have a powerful group of bonding mm. be around such a painful and traumatic mm. loss. So it can blur lines when people- So what we mean by like us may may, may It vary. might be a shared experience, right. not that we grew up in the same neighborhood. Or we're the same race or the same exactly. gender or whatever. Yeah. And we also have um, empathy for people who share a common goal. So this is why sports teams and like, shouldn't say this in New York, but like Red Sox Nation, an incredible identity around team identity. And and we also have a lot of empathy with people where we share a common enemy. Mm -hmm. So almost (laughs) everyone can relate to sort of coming together because people agree that somebody is being really harmful or inappropriate or abusive. So that also crosses racial and national boundaries. We see that to a certain extent also with natural disasters, a hurricane or something. Yeah, or a fire, things we're seeing in the news. Empathy is definitely a mutable trait. I want to finish the whole thread to compassion because we have sympathy that's sort of like empathy light. (laughs) And we have empathy where we really are feeling with and understanding other people's thoughts. Mm. We need empathy in order to show compassion. There are perceptive arms or incoming information that helps us empathize, like noticing facial expressions, naming someone's emotions, like really taking in what their experience is. Mm. And that motivates something called empathic concern. And so we might see devastating homeless people on the street where we walk by and we're moved and we feel like this is awful. This is terrible. Many of us don't stop every time we see somebody and do something about it. But we might still have empathic concern. 
you know, we might write to our congressman and say, like, why aren't there more homeless shelters? Or like, what can we do? We might give money to an organization, but we don't necessarily express compassion. I think empathic concern also in New Yorkers, uh, in particular, people who are faced with homelessness on a regular basis, can ultimately trigger a kind of defensive reaction, the sense of frustration over the feeling of empathic compassion, the sense that I'm too busy and there's nothing I can do and what do you want me to do, give all the money to all the people, you know, whatever, is what then in some people triggers a kind of hard shell of defense ultimately. Because some science shows that we are actually, our first impulse is empathy and that we have to check it because we'd be emptying our wallets every day on the way to work, right? But the impulse is to help. Then we have to sort of back up and think, what is an effective way to help other than giving dollar bills out? But like, what again, how do we get to the system here? And even if there is a more rational way to help than giving dollar bills out, you're still faced with the human contact on the subway of an individual looking you in the face and saying, can you help me? And, and then saying no to that. I've actually stopped and talked to some homeless people mm. because I think getting their stories is incredibly important. Some homeless people have said, thank you for just looking me in the eye. Most people don't won't even look me in the eye. Mm. So obviously it's different depending on who the person is. Yeah, but sometimes yeah. the human touch isn't just about money. It's about, you know, I have said to people, do you know about this? shelter this address like sometimes we can give more than money and hearing a story about a homeless person and how they got to be that way can be so powerful powerful for for you because it sort of changes i guess your relation to that person and to homelessness generally and also for them being heard and like humanized visible yeah humanized So with this whole empathy and compassion continuum, I see them not as two exclusive different things. Like empathy is the is the way to perceive and okay. be moved right. through empathic concern. And compassion is what comes out. You see the evidence of the empathy in what comes out. And I love a point you made just a few minutes ago about when we really feel empathy, it blurs the line between self and other because we can imagine ourselves in that position. And Walt Whitman had a beautiful line where he says, I cannot heal the man until I become the man. Mm. You know, in psychotherapy, until you can really grasp what an experience is like for another person, both through emotion and imagination and their reporting of it, until you're moved and can see like, oh, I get what that could feel like it's really hard for people to feel really understood. When you think about the whole scope of human need, it's hard not to feel that it's a pretty brutal calculus that we have to make. You know, like when we have to sit there and say, well, okay, here's where I'm going to place my empathy. I mean, I get it. We're only each of us one individual, right? But I mean, like if I sit there and I do a ranking of like, where am I going to give my charity? Where am I going to give my attention? Who am I going to talk to and who am I not? I mean, realistically, it is what it is, but it feels cold and utilitarian and, and, and harsh when you, when you kind of have to look at it square I, in the well, face. Well, I, I would try to turn that upside down and say, instead of like, all I can do is this, I'm grateful I can do this much. Because 
anything that you're doing to, mm. to help other people is in the positive. Mm. And if, if we're too harsh on ourselves, like, well, all I did was give that much and, oh, there were 50 charities asking and I only gave to five. That's almost like getting to compassion fatigue. No, no, I totally get yeah, that. But yeah. I guess what I'm thinking is that one feels a bit like the monarch of compassion on one's throne, doling out the, compa- like, where shall I put my pearls of compassion? Because you are making choices, you know? I would say that there's probably something really important about just noticing in your own heart where you're stirred the most, Mm. because whatever is moving you to give to what matters to you might be different from what matters to me. And maybe in all the different ways that are, that we are moved, like we collectively are making a difference. Hopefully maybe the invisible hand of compassion kind of solves all of it. It's evening things out. It would be nice. (laughs) Um, Before we get to the surprise quips part of the show, I do want to take a minute to talk about the practice of empathy, the acronym. Mm -hmm. You've worked with teaching people to pay attention to these cues cues in others. When people stop staring into screens and actually meet someone's gaze and have a meaningful hello right and um start with an open-ended question instead of like so how's the chest pain that is so simple but Mm. uh, trust me it's not happening everywhere another thing that i noticed in the shadowing that i had done was that when when people are either staring at clipboards or computer screens or anything else they're missing very important facial expression cues So I would see, you know, somebody typing something in the computer right after they said, oh, we're going to start you on this medication. And then the patient would make some incredible smirk that the doctor didn't see. And when the doctor doesn't see it, he's or she is filling out the prescription and believing that a great intervention's just been made. (laughs) Right. And when you look at the face, you're thinking they're never going to take that. Sometimes we say, what do you feel about that? medication, you know, you know, are you, are you on board? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the patient will say, you know what? I was on that last year and I took it for three days and I threw up every single day and I don't want to take it. But that conversation might not happen if you don't see the disgusted look on the face. So eye contact is important with the caveat that neuroatypical people and potentially and cultural, cross-culturally some it might not, not every, be appropriate. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> this is an important point. Yeah. Staring at people or prolonged gaze when people are averting their gaze mm. is not appropriate. That's We're the talking hostility about con- Yes. Yeah. And some people <laughs> don't really want a lot of eye contact and you sense it and you just don't force it. Case by case, but mostly yeah. eye contact. Yeah. So uh, reading muscles of facial expression, we did training in facial expression That's decoding. M. That's yeah. M. So there's no F in empathy. So we had to use the M for muscles of facial expression. Gotcha. And then just to quickly go through the rest, the P is for posture and noticing that we can learn a lot if people are slumped over and looking depressed versus standing erect and kind of very confident. So all these cues are things that you just learn how to take in and as information about that person's emotional state. The A is for affect, which is the science word for emotion and labeling the affect. So right now 
you look very relaxed, right? <laughs> so I've noticed that. Except I just noticed that my arms were crossed. And yeah. now I'm super self-conscious now that we're doing the empathy <laughs> reading on me. But, um, but yes. <laughs> well, there's, no arm, there's no arms on your chair, so I couldn't get that. But naming the affect, she looks confused. He looks concerned. He looks angry. She looks disgusted. When we make a mental note, we're much more able to tune into what is going on for that person. Isn't that rife with dangers for like making assumptions about what other people are thinking or feeling? And what if, you know, what about cross-culturally? What if smiling isn't a thing so much in their country? And Eye contact, they're definitely different norms. Mm. Like in Asian countries, like really direct eye contact is considered impolite. Gotcha. But there still is a meeting of the gaze. Okay. It's just very brief. But the three big takeaways for how to connect non-verbally across mm. cultures were a smile, okay, open body posture, mm. and that means not, not being like this your, and, and arms when you're when you're talking <laughs> with people, and a warm tone of voice. You know, Paul Ekman, who's the leading expert on facial expression decoding, found that cross-culturally that the expressions for Happiness, sadness, anger, contempt, fear, and surprise were pretty much cross-culture. Okay. Yep. okay, well, good. Thank yep. you. So that's important. We've gone to affect. T is tone of voice. Mm -hmm. Noticing the tone, pace, rhythm, and volume. You know, so if you're talking with someone from the Deep South and you're a New Yorker and you're like talking a little at a faster clip. Right. And maybe louder trying to modulate to get a little closer to the, how that person is talking actually gets people more in synchrony. Gotcha. Tone of voice. And then H is hearing the whole person. Does hearing the whole person also involve this attention that we're talking about to yes. emotions and yes. posture? And Not so. just what they're saying, yeah. but kind of the, the, the whole perspective. And then the why is your response. And your response, a lot of people think, means what are you going to say next? Right. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Your response is how are you responding like emotionally to this person? If you're feeling warm and comfortable, chances are they are too. Right. Because most feelings are shared and mutual. But if you feel annoyed, irritated, perplexed, confused, bemused... Just ask yourself, gee, I wonder if that's how that person was feeling. Mm. Because maybe you're annoyed because they're annoyed. <laughs> and they might be annoyed because of something you did. <laughs> right, 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 right. Going back very briefly before we move on to the next bit to what we were saying earlier on, I think the extent to which you are obsessed with your schedule, your productivity, the 50 things you have to do this week, to that extent, you are pulled out of that ability yes, to connect. Yes, you're not in an empathic <laughs> stance. Yeah. You're, in a, you're in a solo performance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For the audience, this is the part of the show where Big Think's producers have dug up interview clips from our video archives, and Helen and I are going to watch one of these, and neither she nor I has seen it before. Uh, it's just going to be a conversation starter to take us where we go. This is Leland Melvin. He was apparently a former professional athlete who became an astronaut and engineer for NASA, and he's talking yeah, about hands-on learning. Um, drove a a $500 bread truck into our driveway. And I thought we were going into the bread business. And he said, no, this is our camper. 
I said, I can read. It says, Marita bread and rolls on the side of the truck. And over that summer, we built bunk beds to flip down. We made a sofa. We plumbed a propane tank into a Coleman stove. We rewired the entire truck. Over that summer, I learned how to be an engineer. And I was in middle school. So experiential learning. And it wasn't until we painted the side of the truck that I realized we're going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on vacation in this recreational vehicle. So experiential learning, whether it comes from home, school, wherever you get it, Boys and Girls Club, but we have to give kids meaningful things to do with their hands and give them problems that can help you know, solve problems in their community or in the world and not just do make work stuff. And I think when we, when we let them build and create and, it, and, it, and it's meaningful and it helps them solve a problem, that gets them thinking about how they can be change makers themselves and how they can be scientists and engineers because that's what they're doing and they're thinking creatively and they're solving problems. And that's what we do as, as engineers and scientists. And so get them, get them early building and creating uh, things that are meaningful. Like I built a bread truck that you know, saved the day for us. And we didn't have to spend $24,000 on a Winnebago when we have a $500 bread truck that serves the same purpose, getting the family in the cheapest way possible to a destination so that the family can explore these new surroundings. The intellectual side of learning and the physical side of learning, how are they connected and what is that interplay? And I think Lego has done a really great job of teaching kids to play with these bigger Dublo blocks or the bigger blocks where they're trying to move them from one side of the body to the other side. Because if you split the brain as you're going across the brain, you are now making this physical space connection with both sides of your brain. And, and their, their play is intentional to have kids do that at a very early age. And so understanding how my body works, how I turn and twist and jump when I'm catching a pass, has the same effect as me working hand controllers on the International Space Station, moving the, the $2 billion Columbus Laboratory out of the payload bay of the shuttle and attaching it to the space station. I have to know how to position my body in zero gravity, where I'm not you know, floating off and I'm gonna put in the wrong you know, hand controller motion that's gonna slap the thing in the side of the space station and kill the project and maybe kill us. So body, mind, spatial reasoning, body spatial reasoning are all connected to solving problems. And you, know, you have these foot straps you put your feet in that keep you from you know, translating around, but still you have to react off the hand controllers just like you do off the, off the foot straps. And I think you know, understanding your body in space as well as on the ground helps you do these technical things that are, that are challenging with your body. What I love about this is that my first reaction when I started hearing, when I heard about the bread truck, was that he was going to be upset as a child about having been in like straightened circumstances where his dad could only get them a bread truck instead of an RV. And this turns into the exact opposite, like a totally, totally empowering, wonderful and beautiful story about a family coming together to do something cool and in no way feeling sorry for their circumstances. I assumed that he was talking about coming from a childhood of, of lack mm -hmm. and that was not at all the story that he was telling. When I heard his tone of voice about, that's a bread truck, what I kind of heard was disappointment and maybe a little bit of shame. Wait a minute, you know, mm -hmm. don't pull this over on me and maybe I don't want to drive around in a bread truck. But as you were describing, 
it turned into a creative enterprise with the family. And he learned how to create something by using his hands, which was yeah. an engineering feat. And so what's so lovely about this is that what may have started with <laughs> negative feelings right. actually turned into a sense of pride. Like he, at the end, he's like saying, so we got to go to Myrtle Beach, you know, and this thing that costs, you know, a fraction of what an RV costs. And that transformation when you get, allow kids to do something and participate in, in something creative and a powerful life lesson, you know, I mean, if you're constantly buying experiences that have been prearranged for you by somebody else, you would miss all of that without even knowing. Exactly. You know, all of that potential learning. Yes. I associated to my son's eighth grade science teacher mm. who on parents' night showed us all the way she was teaching about the solar system. And I have to confess, the way everything moves around in space has always been a little challenging for me. <laughs> but she had Those light bulbs. Uh, ellipses are a little hard to get well, a Well, so what was going that. around where and how long it took and all that. But she had this all mapped out in this like really elegant way. And then she said, you know, they're learning about the constellations. And I'm going to charge every one of you to go out on like this night and your child's homework will not be finished until you both have identified these 12 can constellations. That's how I know you don't live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, no, no one seeing any constellations where I live. But, but anyway, the yeah. point okay. was, <laughs> Sorry. yeah, and we had to go like to this farm area. So we were away from the lights, obviously. But so this experience... And I, I mean, we've been under the night sky with our children for years, but now we had a shared learning experience and the excitement of looking through these little telescopes and finding these stars and these constellations mm. and naming them together is still a thrill whenever I can see the night sky because it was a really hands-on experience. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful project. And Pedagogically, I think that project-based learning, which basically just means doing something that teaches you a lot of the specific things that they would be teaching you otherwise, but in the context typically of a group effort, is really good for kids. And certainly, I would think in terms of fostering empathy and communication well, and connection. Like. Yes. Yeah, so, Jason, I was just thinking that one of the great equalizers in businesses is getting team members to do a project together. And it really right. breaks down barriers of like, you don't look my, like me, you're not from the same background. Mm. One company I heard about bought very simple bikes in pieces, and they had a business outing where different teams had to assemble a bicycle. Oh, wow. But that process of bringing people together and solving a tangible problem together boosted morale and made these teams really come together in a really energized way. So this is where my bias comes out. And I'm going to take something that you just said, which was super positive and come at it from a very weird and critical angle, which is that I am very skeptical of these sorts of things when companies do this kind of thing, because the idea is presumably that you're bringing people closer together, right? And I think that's great. In the end, companies are doing that because they want people to be more productive and they want the companies to work, you know, to function better, right? And then succeed as 
companies. Um, maybe they also, maybe some of them very much genuinely care about the well-being of the workers, but I think it's a mix. I think it's a grab bag, you know? And I also wonder about the duration. Does that bonding, how long does that bonding last and how do people know? You know, I think some really astute companies realize that they are going to be more productive if people are happier. And why not try to make people come together and have a a good experience. And I think some of these, you might say, more orchestrated efforts, they were sort of built in like, we're going to have a challenge and have fun. And the byproduct was that people found that when they worked together to solve common problems, they got to see how valuable somebody was maybe from a different background. Like this person we just heard about right. might have said, oh yeah, I learned how to fix this when I was a kid. This is, and they might be the real expert on putting the bike together. So it's a way of really gotcha. equalizing opportunities for people's different talents to, to, to come forward. You can call it cynical or critical, but I literally last week came off this conversation with Ruth Whitman, where we were very much talking about how what we're seeing is that a lot of very large companies are losing, cutting the margins. You know, it's it's harder for a lot of workers. And at the same time, they're feeding people wellness things, oh, I which see. are kind of so acting you, as you a feel kind like of bait and switch. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you're coming at this that's, from a different that's context. That's where I'm coming from. I understand what you're saying in terms of if you just go meditate and go take a yoga class, we can keep treating you in these, you know, really challenging and impossible conditions. And it's your problem if you're getting burned out. Right. Well, everyone's listening to that, too. I can't speak for major companies, but I can speak for some hospital systems that I'm familiar with. Right. You know, we have CEOs of hospitals standing up and saying, we are the problem. You're not mm. the problem. We're the problem. And we have to look at the expectations, the throughput the number of hours people are working. Is there one system in particular? I mean, not that we're advertising hospital systems. I'm just curious. Well, I did hear the CEO of Stanford Hospital okay. um, at a conference in Washington, D.C., really address that we can't just blame the workers for these problems. We have to change systems. Corny as it sounds to get yoga passes, people do appreciate it. And they, they are also told you can leave work an hour early and get a free yoga pass. That's very different than go home and do yoga. Right. 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 They are suffering when they're not tr treating their own employees in a humane way. Right. And I think different organizations are getting to these insights at different paces. I mean, we can say, I think maybe more broadly, even that empathy is essential in human relations at any level one-to-one, -one, small group, family, Teams. organization, government, world. That yes. basically it, it's essential and has the same function, which is protecting us from abusing each other and helping us to help each other. When we hurt others, we're hurting ourselves. Right. And I think that's, you know, probably something that businesses really do need to take a hard look at. Helen Reese, it's been a lot of fun talking to you today. Thanks for, for dealing with all of my intense pushback as well. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It's nice to talk with you. I enjoyed it too. Thanks. Okay. And that is our show. Helen Reese's new book, The Empathy Effect, is available now. It's a practical guide to using empathy to change your life, work, and relationships using the lab-tested techniques that we discussed on this show. I don't know anyone who couldn't benefit from a bit more active empathy practice. Do you? 
Think Again isn't mostly explicitly about current events, but they do ripple through our conversations here and shape the themes we circle around time and again. 2018, as everyone seems to be saying, has been a hell of a year. As I wrote to a friend the other day, the thing I know how to do is how to keep the conversation going. Planting seeds as a byproduct of play in the sandboxes of thought and art. I'm grateful for everyone who's trying to do what they know how to do to add beauty and goodwill to the world. If you value these conversations too, please go to your favorite podcast platform and rate and or review Think Again. I'll be back next week with something truly different. See you then.